0: I'm Tannis MacDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writer's Podcasts. In this episode, we wonder about love's transformative power as a radical concept. What happens to language and what happens to people when language translates love? Poetry about love proposes old questions, but we haven't fully answered them yet. And in this episode, Luke Hathaway takes up the challenge. We talk about Luke's Waterloo Region roots and the international reach of his latest book, Years, Months, and Days, as well as the importance of influences in maker culture. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. You can find more about future podcast episode on our website, watershedriders.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Riders, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. On this program, we listen locally and think globally and we feature writers who live in the region as well as those who have lifelong attachments to this place. One such writer is my guest for today's episode, the writer, editor, and professor, Luke Hathaway. Luke now lives in Nova Scotia where he teaches at St. Mary's University in Halifax. But Luke is also a long time resident of Waterloo Region and has served for many years as a contributing editor to the New Quarterly under his former name, Amanda Jernigan. Luke is the author of three books of poems and a libretto. In addition, he has been a contributing editor and writer for Canadian Notes and Queries, has worked in publishing for Porcupine's Quill and for Gasparo Press, and is now advisory editor for the Best Canadian Poetry series published annually by Biblioasis Press. Luke's writing has been shortlisted for a National Magazine Award for Nonfiction as well as for the Malahat Review Novella Prize. His first book, Groundwork, was shortlisted for the Pat Lowther Award and received international attention when National Public Radio named it a Best Book of the Year in 2011. His second book, All the Daylight Hours, was named to the National Post's Best Poetry List for 2013. About Luke's first book, George Murray wrote... Quote, you hold in your hands a collector's item of the future. Mark my words, you'll say, I was there when. Well, folks, I can tell you I was there then. I was at Wordsworth Books when Luke read from that first book, The Luminous Groundwork. This book has poems that, quote, make your brain fizz, says Governor General's award-winning author Douglas Glover. I'm holding my copy of Groundwork in my hands and I can tell you that Luke not only rewrites part of Homer's Odyssey in this book, but also the Groundwork contains one of the most thoughtful and funniest short poems that I've ever read. It's called What the Siren Said and it goes like this. Come closer and I'll tell you. Luke's most recent book, is Years, Months, and Days, a collection of lyric fragments, small meditations on lines or passages from hymns in a Mennonite hymnal published in rural Ontario in 1836. Interarts Matrix, as led by artistic director Isabella Stefanescu, commissioned a series of these poems as words for music, and 14 of them make up the libretto for the choral piece of the same name, Years, Months, and Days, with music by Colin Labadee. The piece was premiered by the Menno Singers in 2017. Luke says that this book is a meditation on the possibility of translation. Zachary Thomas writes in the Hamilton Review of Books that years, months and days is a book attuned to our necessity for coping. Jean Van Loon in ARC Magazine writes, these intense but graceful poems express the poet's connection to the original texts, to the people they nourished, and to the landscape which helped to shape them. And that landscape, of course, is Grand River Country. Speaking of international accolades, years, months, and days made the New York Times book reviews list of the best poetry collections of 2018. As Luke writes in his editor's essay in best Canadian poetry, what happens to language happens to people. What becomes possible in language becomes possible for people. Translation is a kind of transfiguration and shifting genres means shifting perspectives. Writing lyrics for music has become a big part of Luke's recent writing life. And he has written this, which I love. Music is a superpower. When words put on music, it's like they're putting on a cape. And I will give the final word of this introduction to writer Rob Taylor, whose review of years, months, and days will carry us over into our interview with Luke. And here's Rob. The poems contain whole worlds, whole schools of thought. If some books can be read in one sitting, this one can be read 10 times in that same span. And in each reading it will be a new book, making of itself a new offering. Needless to say, is a rather singular reading experience in the world of contemporary Canadian literature. Welcome to Watershed Writers, Luke Hathaway.
1: Nice to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. You know, I haven't seen you in a few years and I've been thinking about when we first met and I I couldn't come up with a year. I thought maybe it was 2011 when you read from your first book, Groundwork. I went to your reading at Wordsworth Books that, that time we miss you here in, uh, in Grand River region, because I know you've been in Nova Scotia for the past little while.
1: That's right, it's nice, to, it's nice to be able to be with you from afar. And I know
0: that you were back in the Grand River region recently to work on, we might call, a very Waterloo kind of interdisciplinary project involving your poems, uh, a 19th century Mennonite hymnal, and the good people at the Inter-Arts Matrix. Can you tell us more about that project, especially uh, what it was like to write the work
1: and then move into collaboration with others? In the case of this project, which is, has borne fruit in a number of ways, one of them, this small book, Year's, Months and Days, but there were, have been other manifestations of this work. Really the collaboration was woven in from the, the start. It's a work that arose organically out of a space of collaboration. So. Well, it's a joy to talk about that because it reminds me of people I love very dearly. I was invited by the visual artist and impresario uh, Isabella Stefanescu, who at that time was artistic director of InterArts Matrix, to come back to the Waterloo region in 2015 to take part in a residency in St. Jacob's. And the residency was called A Sense of Place and it was organized by, directed by Interarts Matrix, the arts production organization in KW, and co-sponsored by the Reap Felt Lab in St. Jacobs, which was our venue. And Isabella, whose own practice has been very place-based and very out of doors, was interested to see what would happen if she gathered a group of artists who worked in various different media, a visual artist, a kind of engineer, photographer, Renaissance man, a composer and multi-instrumentalist, me, a poet, a writer. What would happen if she, if she gathered us in situ there in St. Jacob's? We all had some connections to that region um, either because we'd we been raised there or because we'd, we'd come there in adulthood and tried to make lives there as artists. What would happen if she gathered us and then asked us to do a thing that landscape painters do, which is go outside and make work in situ, in plein air, on the land. So she sent us out to the environs of St. Jacobs to spend time by mill runs and in cornfields and along suburban sidewalks. And eventually, having asked some permission to be there in in the space of a, a cemetery adjacent to an Old Order Mennonite meeting house outside of St. Jacobs. You know, that was a space that I, I really entered with some trepidation. As I say in, in the book, Years, Months and Days, I think we the living are always a little bit interlopers. But also, I was an outsider to that faith community. And at that time, an outsider to, to Christendom. I've se- I've since converted. <laughs> it precipitated a change in me. The writing of this book precipitated a change in me. And, a, and entering... More deeply into that faith, not in fact in its uh, Anabaptist expression. I've become an Anglican. The words and meanings that I was beginning to explore there, the particular language of love that I found in the Christian hymns that I meditated on, in the work that became Years, Months, and Days. I think, in some ways, precipitated my my entry into that faith as an adult.
0: Can you tell me more about your collaborators in this project? It sounds like there were a
1: lot of people involved and a lot of people working on it. I was there in this meeting house cemetery, having asked permission, but still feeling very much a fish out of water with the photographer, uh, Matt Borland, photographer, engineer, teacher, the visual artist, Sarah Kernahan and the composer, Colin Labadee, and Colin, like me, had a kind of attraction, repulse, repulsion relationship. I think with the the words and music of Protestant hymns. He was familiar to them. In fact, I think Colin was raised a Catholic. But uh, but a lot of the liturgical music that he knew from his his education, you know, came out of a kind of Judeo-Christian world. You know, he had he had some family roots in Christendom, but he also, you know, like many, you know, had been repelled by accrued layers of xenophobia, homophobia, sexism, you know, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed, and I was repelled by those things, you know, and yet drawn in, I think, by, by, by the beauty of the poetry, you know, and, and the music. Anyway, I was a word person, so I wanted to know what sorts of words might be associated uh, with the rituals practiced in that meeting house or in that cemetery. Colin was interested in what kinds of musical patterns had been meditated on and performed in that space. So we went to the, the library at Conrad Grebel College and the librarians there were kind to us and put us on to the old order Mennonite hymnal called the Gemeinschaftliche Liedersammlung, community songbook, which exists in, in German. It was printed in the early 19th century for the use of the local German speaking Mennonite community, um, has been in continuous use since then in that community. In 2011, a literal translation into English was made and privately printed, and that translation was my point of access to the work. And uh, I, I read it straight through, which is kind of an odd way to read a hymnal. I think often in liturgical practice, one simply dips in, you know, one reads this hymn or that hymn on this or that particular occasion. Right. But I, I read it straight through, and, you know, it's like reading the book of Psalms, you know, you find yourself in these rhythms of, in fact, doubt and faith despair and hope, um, death and regeneration. And those, those rhythms were deeply compelling to me. And they spoke of the kinds of natural and agricultural rhythms on which I had imprinted, I suppose, as a young person growing up in the kind of rural environs of, of Waterloo. Those rhythms, those patterns were a point of entry for me. And I began to write these poems that were meditations often on just lines or even part lines from within the hymnal. Um, and the, those, those poems became eventually the, the libretto for a piece of music that Colin Lavity wrote called Years, Months and Days, which in a beautiful kind of uh, returning to and retaking up by the Mennonite community was premiered by Menno, Menno Singers in Kitchener in 2017. And then the, the poems naked of their musical accompaniment uh, became the text of the, the book that I held up a moment ago, Years, Months and Days. So. This sounds like a very intense experience, a
0: revelatory experience, and also I'm interested in the fact that this was a community hymn book and brought together a community of artists as well. I'm intrigued with the fact that this was such an organic process that uh, you all put together by being in a particular place. And uh, just to let you know, I some of this podcast grew out of uh, Isabella's invitation to me to, to speak about uh, writing from place uh, in the Interhearts Matrix. So Luke, for your work on Years, Months, and Days, uh, I've read, and I'm going to quote you to yourself, that your intention was, quote, to carry something across from a tradition to a personhood. And uh, I think there about the term that writer and translator Erin Murray has used about um, translation, and she always calls her translations transelations, suggesting that in the translation there's there's something else at work. And I'm also interested in influences in your writing in general. So can you think about that? I mean, there's there's that idea of transelation that translating isn't literal but there's something else at work, some other kind of resonance at work. Yeah,
1: and thinking about you know, how true that was or, or wasn't for you for uh, years, months, and days. This idea of trying to bring something across from a tradition into a personhood. I've been interested in the kind of root sense of that word understanding, you know, quite literally to, to stand under something, to take yeah. it upon oneself, to to take it on as one's burden, to live it in one's bones and one's blood, makes one think how little one understands, perhaps, of much of what one reads and how sometimes you can read a whole book of poetry, say, or the whole of the Bible. I guess. And understand in the true sense one small phrase, but maybe that one small phrase is everything. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you know? We don't right. need, in fact, to shape a lifetime. When I approached the, the hymn material in the Leader Liedersammlung, I was, I think, subconsciously adopting a method that I had learned from the poet Suvankham Tamavongsa, whom I much admire. Tamavongsa, in her book, Found, approaches a journal that her father kept when she was an infant. And in fact, when she was in utero, the family was living in a refugee camp in Nongkai, Thailand, The father was writing in Laotian, a language that Temavangsa as an adult did not have. And Tamavongsa resisted the urge to ask her father to translate the journal. And rather she approached it with the imperative to carry across into her own writing only that which she felt she could understand with the apparatus she had within her. And sometimes it was only a number or a word. And so what we get is a a portrait, both of her comprehension, her, her sometimes occasional flashing forth comprehension and her, her incomprehension, you know, that which is mysterious to her, that which is dark to her, unknown or unknowable, a kind of respecting of mystery and also a respecting of that which is truly beyond ourselves, truly other. And she lets all of that be there in the silence, in the blank spaces on the page that surround her words I loved the, the integrity and the austerity of her method, and I think it informed my own approach to the hymns that I encountered. You know, when I began that work, there were lots of words and phrases in that book of which I had no real understanding in that true sense. The word God, the word Christ, the phrase the Holy Spirit. Those didn't mean to me when I embarked upon the work of translation, and yet they're absolutely central to the hymn text. but central also are words that I did understand, like sky and sun and day and night and darkness and wheat and bread. And those other words, those images, those metaphors became points of entry for me, which eventually I believe gave on the divine as they do in the liturgical tradition that those hymns come out of.
0: Will you read for us from, uh, from years, months, and days? I think it's time to, to hear some of what we've
1: been talking about. I'll read the prologue of the book. As you've indicated, Kenneth, the poems in this, in this book are very small. The book is made up of, you know, probably um, nine parts silence to one part speech. When I read you the prologue of this book, you'll hear a lot of silence. You'll hear a number of short poems. The poems are untitled, so I'll simply pause between and amongst them to indicate the divisions. Sure. But some of the poems are designed to be looped, a fact that's indicated on the page by a lack of initial capitalization and terminal punctuation, and I'll indicate it here by voice by reading those poems twice. Prologue. O oh, you who know my will, but do not understand it, and must be driven still in restlessness or stranded. Your soul will not be still until you are resigned, how gentle is your friend and kind. I can see the place near to me as you are, clearly as your face but I cannot go there. You see I've come so very far from nothingness that now I cannot see it for. You see I've come so very far from nothingness that now I cannot see it for. Carry my come to me cross with your burdens. Carry my come to me cross with your burdens. By your light, lead me, for I am blinded by your light. Lead me, for I am blinded. Alone, I ask, who shrives the heart? Alone, I ask, who shrives the heart?
0: Oh, wow, thank you very much, Luke. I am very interested in this loop and this repetition. Often when I, when I teach beginning writers, I, I talk to them about the power of repetition, that, that the same thing said twice is not the same thing, right? That it accrues meaning, and sometimes very different meaning. You said you, you read through the hymnal, reading it sequentially in, 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 sort of one, in one fell swoop, and thinking of it as a, perhaps not a narrative, but maybe a, a felt map towards a narrative. And I think about that loop, right, and that what that would do, uh, like inside the narrative, to suggest a slowing down and a concentration and an intensification of, of, of those particular um, things. And I I I keep coming back to you know come so very far from nothingness, right, as a, as a meditation on uh, on being and uh, on faith and on on a journey, right. And so when I was thinking about what you said about or what i said that it seemed to be a very revelatory experience i think working with the sound and the silence is part of that revelation what can be found in the silence anyway that's that's me and my reaction to what you've read i, I want to thank you that was a, that was amazing you you've always had a, an amazing uh, way of performing texts i'm interested in this idea of when you write a book taking on a project and thinking of it i'm going to quote from you again about uh, like an assignment right uh, But you said this in another interview that you you like an assignment and i think as a writer i too like an assignment i like taking on a project and seeing seeing a framework uh, to it and seeing if i can what i can fit into that frame and perhaps more interestingly what doesn't fit into that frame as well so can you tell me a little bit more about this idea of liking an assignment, pursuing a kind of frame or project when you're writing a book? We have lots of listeners who are beginning writers, and I think they would love to know what it means to take on a book as a kind of project that you keep an eye on and to see what, can, uh, what fills out the frame of that project and what doesn't. And we've talked about years, months, and days, and can you start applying that to your earlier works, all the daylight hours, and
1: perhaps groundwork as well? I think that this uh, love of an assignment is in my blood. You know, my grandfather, Nick Blatchford, was a newspaper man writing to assignment all the time, and I think the assignment was a new for him. We always wanted him to write a book about his life after he had retired without the assignment, there was nothing. And then my mother, uh, Kim Jernigan, was for many years, more than three decades, an editor and eventually the editor-in-chief of the New Quarterly, the National Literary Magazine, based in Waterloo. And there too, you know, there was a lot of writing to assignment. A literary magazine comes out four times a year. It has a kind of regularity about it that's as relentless as the agricultural seasons. And those rhythms informed my life and my childhood, seeing my mom with the piles of manuscripts waiting to be read and just the issues to be seen out the door to press. So I think that this sense of writing to assignment is, it's simply part of my sense of how one might be in the world as a writer, as a worker, as a maker, there's something workmen like about writing to assignment that appeals to me because what I do as a writer and a maker, it, it is work in in really the best sense of that word because I also, I, I love it. I think writing to assignment, there's a kind of service ethic to it. You know, if you have an assignment, it's because someone has assigned it to you. Who assigns it can be God or the gods or the universe or however you you kind of ascribe that um that beyond this, but it can, it can also be a human being or a literary journal or people who have come into my life and asked me to do things for them artistically have often, in fact, been muses in just the way that, you know, the, the kind of hard taskmaster of the daily news deadline was a muse to my grandfather. So a person like Isabella Stefanescu who likes to invite artists to do things, a person like my friend and collaborator, Daniel Kabina, a uh, singer, and teacher, music maker in the greatest sense, who's often asked me to make words for music. These people and their assignments are, are muses for me. Yeah, there's a way of letting opportunity
0: into your life, right, um, by listening to what listen to other people's ideas. And it's the certainly part of the joy of collaboration. I want to ask you something else. I mean, you were talking about being a longtime resident of Grand River Country, where uh, Watershed Riders is, is based. So there's something about growing up here and uh, having the kinds of uh, local influences that you've just named. And also uh, the, the interestingness or the, or the loneliness or the exhaustiveness of uh, taking a show on the road and going somewhere else and having to build literary community there. That can give you uh, great energy. Um, and of course it can be a particular challenge as well Can you say what it's been like to move to Nova Scotia and to
1: uh, make creative community there? Well, my life has been marked by serious rupture in the last say, three to six years, um, major crisis, I think, uh, spiritual, personal, interpersonal, and in some ways I, I, I had to start all over. So yeah, I speak to you on the other side of the great fires, in some sense, and that rupture I think was marked for me, or I've tried to mark it in in various ways to make it visible to myself and others to express it. Really, one of those ways of making visible has been through through gender change, through a change of name, right, a change of skin in some sense. So when you ask me about the, that move I think in about transition and mu- much broader senses and I think about really what it means to try to rebuild on the other side of great devastation and I, I think I mean that was a, that was a crisis that was played out in small but of course when it's your own life it's it's never small <laughs> everything right you kind of you show up on the other side of a major life change and you just kind of see what finds you you know it, to, to me it's almost been it's been an experience of some amount of passivity, just trying to be here and keep my head down and do the things I have to do every day, get out of bed, get breakfast for my children, teach my classes, and and hope that eventually the community will find me. It is hard to keep that faith, and especially in the middle of a pandemic, the ways in which people might find you are simply not operative. You're not out and about, you're not doing the kinds of uh, things in the flesh that you might in, in other times. It's just, it's hard for the ecology of love to regrow after devastation at the best of times and particularly in time of plague. Indeed, so what would you say to artists who
0: have gone through like a kind of a, a life rupture, a series of life ruptures? It's a big question and I, I don't think there's an answer, but
1: what have you found most useful? my godfather godfather i chose in adulthood or perhaps he chose me in adulthood or that god chose for me in adulthood is the poet and critic peter sanger Nova scotia writer and thinker and he said to me as i was sort of coming out the other side just try to be still watch the trees watch the grass
0: and you know i guess This leads into the the question that I actually wanted to ask you about teaching others. You said that teaching is one of the things that you try to maintain, and that in some ways gives life back to you as well, particularly uh, when our lives are limited uh, via pandemic restrictions. Do you have advice that you find yourself surprised to be telling
1: new writers whenever you teach? I think I'm continually surprised. how little I have to say about writing, (laughs) how long I seem to be moved to go on saying it, you know. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I feel that I know, you know, could fit on a, you know, well, in, in in a poem of, you know, about 10 words. And yet the nature of meaning is that it's a wellspring, you know, it keeps sort of bubbling up in us. We want to keep seeing it and saying it, looking at it again a day later when we're someone else and seeing if it still means to us, talking about it again to a different group of students and seeing if it still means then. And of course, it changes over time. Everything everything changes as contingency is allowed to do its work. I mean, that is a great thing about being a teacher, that one is constantly exposed to, to contingency. You know, the contingencies of new groups of human beings, new combinations of texts and humans, new life, new life. So as one teaches, one's always learning, and one gets to be a kind of gobsmacked observer alongside students as a meaning morphs in time and in community. It's all just a tremendous wellspring. It is surprising. I think that's the thing. It's not so much that there's something I'm surprised to find myself telling my students. It's more that there are things I am surprised by in the course of our communal being and, and beholding. Indeed. I think that's a very good way to put it and
0: and in many ways I, I thank you for that transition to what I was going to uh, talk about in terms of not only how we teach but who we're taught by. Right so you mentioned uh, Peter Sanger and and I think two are our, our teachers that we find in the books that we read also. You talked about having um, a uh, contemporary influence by reading uh, Sufankham's Found. Uh, but I- I'm interested too in how you respond to older texts as well. And I know that when uh, we talk about your second book, All the Daylight Hours, that there are a number of texts in there that uh, I can see influences from um, a-, a mutual great love that we have for uh, the poet Jay McPherson, uh, the wonderful. Um, winner of the Governor General's Award in 1956 for her book The Boatman, and of course uh, someone who certainly uh, wrestled with ideas of faith and spirituality herself for a number of years, and of course the uh, poet Richard Outram, who I, I know you, uh, you are, are quite an expert on, and of course older influences, and I think whoever wrote the the back cover blurb for All the Daylight Hours really has it right when they say that many of the poems in this book have an engagement with the pages of books long lived with and loved. I'm interested in this idea of um, how you read like a writer and how those kinds of influences show up in your work and and what's the value of being influenced by by what you read and of course, by who you talk to as well.
1: I think that writing has always been for me a kind of understanding, a labor of understanding in those sort of root senses that I was talking about earlier. to, To literally stand under something, to take it upon you, to try to feel it in your bones and blood. So often when I write something, I write to endeavor to understand something that I've read that has moved me. It becomes a way of, I suppose, translating earlier texts. Carrying something across from a tradition into a personhood, you know, that was quite explicitly the method of years, months and days. But in some ways, I think that's the method of all of my poetry, that that it's always been about trying to carry something across from a tradition into a personhood. And then I suppose back into a tradition, person makes the good point that for a myth, and and I think she means that in the highest sense to stay alive, it needs to continue to be retold that a myth that is that is not retold is, is a dead myth. So, you know, we sometimes try to protect earlier texts by keeping people from messing with them. And yet ultimately that kills them, those earlier texts, that kind of protection, you know, we have to let people get their fingerprints upon them. That's how those things, those old stories stay alive. You know, I think we are custodians of human knowledge. All of us are potentially and actually in ways small or great, knowledge keepers, knowledge carriers, it's an enormous responsibility uh, because of course it's a responsibility not only to carry, but to try to listen, to remain open, receptive, to be able to, to change, to be a kind of living men- membrane between uh, tradition and, and actuality, between actuality and, and contingency. Can you uh, read a little bit from uh, All the Daylight Hours uh, for, uh, for us? I know that you said you've got uh,
0: a, um, a series of poems that respond to other texts. And uh, you know I, I had a chance to look up some of those other texts, of course. <laughs> but uh, we'll talk about, talk about responding to texts uh, after I hear the selection of, uh, of the poems. So this is from All the Daylight Hours.
1: I thought I would read three poems from the first section of that book. The section of, is, is called A Natural Day. A Natural Day is a line, I don't have it wrong, from Marlowe's Faustus. And there are lines from that story that, that are sort of embedded at the heart of this poem. Faust, as he realizes his hour is up, calls out, you know, I'll leap up to my God, who pulls me down? We will to live and yet we die. <laughs> this is a great human cry. So, so there's there's that text you know with which the first poem I'll read is in conversation. The latter two poems engage with work by Catullus and and then work by the English poet John Keats. So, in in all three of these poems, you'll hear uh, words of my own sort of woven through and around words by other people. I think William Shakespeare appears in the third as well. But so, the first of these poems is called "A Natural Day," the day after your father's wake. I walk a circle around the field where last week you and I made love, wading in through goldenrod and Joe pieweed and Queen Anne's lace and brome until we found ourselves concealed. Since then the weeds have all leapt up. I'll leap up to my God who pulls me down. I consider breasting them, but I know the spot is overgrown. It's foolishness to think that I, even if space could stand for time, even if you were with me, love could find it. The second of these poems is called Counting Rhyme. It's a shamelessly inaccurate translation of a small poem by Catullus. Come live with me and be my love. And let's not give the time of day to those who say we're mad. The sun, once set, can rise and cheat the grave. You and I, once dead, are done. Noxus perpetua, as they say, kiss me a thousand times. A hundred, then another thousand, then another hundred, thousand, hundred, with so many kisses, we'll lose track. So no one, them can take them back. And then the third poem is called Rushlight. light. The epigraph is from King Lear, in fact, he has words to Cordelia when he thinks they might have a life in jail together. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. There's other Shakespeare woven through here in as you like it. Uh, Rosalind has I believe to the love mad Orlando, something about you have none of my uncle's marks about you. He taught me how to know a man in love. In which cage of rushes, I am sure you are no prisoner. I think I'm I'm botching that. <laughs> in his but that, give the cage of rush, rushes for love, very moving to me. And then, and then also woven through here, Keats's words from his Ode to a Nightingale, half in love with easeful death. Keith says listening to the Nightingale song he feels half in love with easeful death. Anyway all of that uh, woven in like you know bird song in the spring when the birds are all kind of numberless poems called Rushlight. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. It is not easy however half in love we are with easeful death to sing by rush light in a cage of rushes that diminishes with every breath, nor yet to leave off singing, taking for a stage direction the prompter's whispered, love and be silent, to swallow Cordelia's line and exit, however half in love we are with fretful life.
0: Isn't all life fretful one way or another? You know, I think that that your work with Illusion is so rich. I do quite a bit of work with it myself in part because these are our texts. And I think you were right when you say that if people want you to stand apart from those texts, they're just, they're deadening them. They're ours. They're ours to pick up with, to repeat, to talk about how an echo of to be half in love with easeful death is something that echoes in our heads when we read it, the music of it, when when we read it and are taught it, and in some ways are taught to appreciate it. And thinking of them as other people's texts is something that we couldn't refer to is is absolutely to um, keep ourselves separate from from beauty, from the beauty of words, from the beauty of music. And sometimes I, I think I remember lines from texts like that, uh, in part because I, I was taught poetry in a very traditional way, both uh, both uh, you know within uh, within the church and and elsewhere, I was taught to remember it, to memorize it because of its rhythm. So you know I have this really uncool beginning uh, beginnings in terms of a poet. People say you know what were your your big influences, and I always have to say the Bible was a big influence because I was made to memorize Bible verses, and then I understood that things could be recited and they could have music and they could have metaphor and and all of those things. I know you too come from a a tradition of memorizing in order to recite poems as well. What role do you think having this kind of um, memory, these kinds of echoes throughout uh, the poems have to do with uh, what I would call slow poetry, like slow food, right? The fact that things uh, are rooted in deep contemplation, in responses to older texts, and with bringing those kinds of um, myth and metaphor uh, into uh, into contemporary writing—it's
1: so interesting to me to hear you say that you know that was your entry into poetry, to de- the the learning of Bible verses to describe it as a kind of uncool way to entry to enter into poetry. <laughs> I think that in fact, for generations of poets, at least in a certain Western tradition, it was the way of entering into poetry. Oh, yeah. And that in fact, it's fairly recent in a kind of Judeo Christian um, English language tradition that poets have not had that kind of training, you know, that kind of linguistic training, whether or not one considers it a religious training, you know. And I think there are losses and gains. Um, I spoke earlier of the homophobia, the xenophobia, the sexism, you know, that that you know comes into our bones and blood with some of that liturgical language. That is not to be ignored, um, nor to be erased. That history of of hate. Um, at the same time, uh, it is and remains also a language of love, you know, and like so many of our human languages of love, like all of our human languages of love is flawed and, and also profound and moving and meaning. One of the things that is moving, I think about repetition and, and this was called up for me also, I think, by your earlier remarks about those looping poems When you repeat something, you meditate upon it, you can hear it many times in many ways. You can say a line of scripture and you can hear it in earnest and then you can hear it ironically, you know? (laughs) You can hear it once and it doesn't make sense to you. And then, you know, you undergo some sort of a life trauma and it makes incredible sense to you. You know, when when we learn something by heart, it begins to repeat within us. It becomes capable of repetition within ourselves um, in time, over time, that's really powerful. I think it's one of the things that makes poetry a powerful technology for the communication preservation and, and in fact, sometimes alteration over time of human knowledge, even wisdom.
0: You know, I've been reading uh, lately a
1: lot about stimulating the vagus
0: nerve, and and that's (laughs) that's in part uh, certainly uh, what I've been thinking about. How to keep stimulated? How to keep uh, awake and alive during a pandemic restrictions? And one of the things they say that uh, stimulates the vagus nerve, which uh, helps your circulatory system, etc., is singing or humming or chanting. And I think, yeah, chanting and reciting, like saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I think it's very, very old. And in, in many, uh, in many faith traditions, the idea that to say things over and over again enlivens one. Right. Um, And I know that you've been doing a lot of uh, work, certainly with music, beginning with uh, years, months and days and uh, moving into uh, other projects. So I think it's time now to to think a little bit about uh, new work. And, you know, after someone publishes a book and goes through all kinds of life trend, uh, transitions and, and you know is working during a pandemic i always think saying hey what are you working on now is kind of a kind of a loaded question right especially in this era where so many of us are thinking or rethinking what productivity is but i know you've been part of maker culture for a long time i think i'd like to invite you to talk about the other forms of art that you're engaged in i, I know you used to weave i don't know whether you do it anymore and I know you're involved in music and you just talked about your powers of recitation that are very traditional. Do you make other kinds of art that that we haven't talked about yet or do you want to say more about the ones I've I've already named?
1: Well I love that you fancy me a weaver but in fact... Are are you not? (laughs) No, No, I. As a child I had a Fisher-Price loom and it in fact had a great effect upon me you know I loved it and it was there that I understood you know in my fingers something of of the language of weaving the warp and the weft you know (laughs) the motion of the shuttle up a loom and all of that you know i put to to metaphorical and other ends in my first book groundwork as as you've observed but you know to call myself a weaver i i'd hardly presume and i'm only a music maker because i've got a little help from my friends i mentioned earlier the magnificent vocalist and person, Daniel Cabina, who teaches voice at um, Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. He's also in training to be an instructor of the Alexander Technique, an aspect of his practice and his music making, very important to him. Dan's just a magnificent singer, performer, uh, teacher, and, and friend. And Dan wrote to me kind of out of the blue about four years ago, I guess, having read my poems saying that he'd like to sing them. And he wondered, in fact, if I might write some new things for his voice. And that was the beginning of a a wonderful and ongoing collaboration. Dan and I, I think are both very interested in the animation of um, old words, old tunes, allowing them to to speak in new performance contexts, allowing uh, new humans to speak through them and to them. And uh, together we, you know, we ha- we have a kind of what we call a metamorphosing ensemble, anima, a n i m a. You know, the word for the, for the spirit, also for for the kind of feminine aspect in anyone's soul, male or female or other, um, and or other. We're under under that uh, kind of Im- imaginal rubric, we make art, and and most recently. A small program of, of work in conversation with and homage to the 15th century Burgundian composer Guillaume Dufay. Dan's training had him singing a lot of early music. Um, and Dan introduced me to Dufay and his beautiful three part part sung melodies, and also to the form of the parody mass. Know, a, a kind of mass, a liturgical piece, into which is woven in a, in an integral way a vernacular melody, a folk song, a love song. Oh, wow! And, and this form really, oh, it speaks to me profoundly. You know, with, with my with my interest in the kind of juxtapositions and superimpositions of the sacred and the secular, my interest in what in in what the sacred and the profane have to say to one another, you know, and, and through one another. So, and Dan, you know, he a lot of the music he's sung is in languages other than English. And I believe he's something of a polyglot. You know, he can understand all that in the truest sense, but his audiences can't always. And right. I, think, I think he became interested in wanting to be able to sing some of this repertoire in, in English, in part sometimes as an aid to his own understanding and also to the understanding of his audiences. So he asked me to make some new English words for some of these old part sung melodies by Guillaume Dufay. I thought that I might share with you and your audience uh, a little bit of, of Dan singing. Dan here collaborating with two other artists from Wilfrid Laurier University and that community, Stephen Clock and John Weems. The three of them together bodied forth this program that Dan and I contrived called The Lover and the Beloved, or where two or three are gathered. And it's it's available on YouTube through the Wilfrid Laurier Music at Noon series that's put on by the Faculty of Music there. In the little clip that I'm going to play for you, you'll hear some words from from the French ballad that Dufay set to music and set at the heart of his Parody Mass, which is called Misa C'est la face à pal, if the face is pale, if my face seems pale. You'll hear a verse of the French ballad, and then you'll hear you'll, you'll hear a verse in English, which are the words that I made, shaped for Dufay's melody, and in an homage to it, and in conversation with the French words. Then you'll hear a little bit of the texture and the words and the melodies of the Latin mass into which Dufay set all of this in a beautiful collocation of the sacred and the profane.
0: And are you going to read the English lyrics for us
1: as well? Sure, I'll I'll read you, in in fact, the three verses, I think, of of the the English ballad that I made in response to the French, though in the clip that I'll play for you, you'll just hear the first of these interspersed with some French and some Latin. If you see me fall, then you must believe that the cause is love and that love is all that could make me fail, founder in this sea. And if I should leave, then the cause is love, its billows and waves gone over me. If I seem to bear more than mortal weight if I seem to wait longer than is fair, if I lie awake, know it is for him, my beloved's voice knocking at the door, calling me by name, who is not there? If I see your love, how am I to know? Who is he that you should be smitten so? Has he eyes of doves, are they fitly set that you washed his feet with your woman's hair? He's the one you stare past in the street. Can you say a
0: little bit more about this idea of, uh, of the parody? You're talking about the sacred and the profane uh, coming together, being woven together. Um, but I'm interested in this, uh, in what else is being parodied uh, within, uh,
1: within the form? Just because I don't, I don't know much about it. Can you, can you say more? Well, I, I think that word parody also has sort of a sacred and a profane meaning. You know, we think about parody in the sense of a kind of a burlesque, a making fun of, but there's another, there's another sense of that word parody which has to do simply with the collocation of different texts. And that's the sense in which the word parody attaches to mass, you know, in, the, in, in, in that phrase, the parody, mass so the intention as I understand it was not to mock it was rather to elevate I think both the sacred and the vernacular material that that by being set in juxtaposition with one another both both those things might be raised but you know I, I think it's complex because I think that those things are raised by being set in opposition with one another we lose something if we erase the the bodiness of love you know and desire if we push it out of our sacred speakings we lose something and and so allowing in the the vernacular love song you know with with all of its room for that which is flawed and human and funny and sexy, you know. It redeems the sacred, I think, in a kind of a way, even as it is also redeemed in all of its flawedness, in all of its capacity for hurt and violence, you know, and and loss, you know, even as it is also redeemed by the sacred, the language of that which is everlasting.
0: Okay, that's, uh, that's lots to think about, and I, uh, Listen carefully to the clip and and see and, and look for those kinds of markers for sure. Luke, we're coming to the end of our time, and I have a final question that I'd like you to uh, to think about, and that is, what is your most valuable writer's tool, the one without which you wouldn't be a writer?
1: Love. <laughs> <laughs> if you fall, then you must believe that the cause is love. <laughs> that love is all that could make me fail in this sea. And if I should leave, then the cause is love, its billows and waves gone over me. You know, I think without allowing my heart to breathe, I would die as a writer. And without following the heart in its hard lesson, in fact, in the learning of which one sometimes dies, I would die as a writer. Luke Hathaway, thank you for being here
0: uh, on Watershed Riders. It's been such a pleasure to reconnect with you and to hear about your upcoming work. And uh, I wish you a a very good couple of months um, coming up in uh, what might be a difficult time, but I wish you uh, more love, more
1: connection, more writing. Thanks so much, Tanis, and thank you for bringing me uh virtually back into the kind of uh, local matrix of my growing up there in in the Grand River watershed. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Watershed Riders is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region, with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album Rooted. Why do we connect?